Thank you to our praise team. Appreciate your leadership. It's wonderful to have you here with us today. I know we have some guests that are joining us. You're uh, probably celebrating with your graduates. Perhaps you're here for the first time. Uh, On graduation Sunday, I try not to preach at our graduates, especially when there's just three of you. That gets a little intimidating. I don't mind preaching at Anna, but... um, I do it all the time. What's that? She left. She left. Yeah, yeah. She, she's there. She went. She's gone. Um, however, I do want to just encourage you. You know, as you graduates and parents, as as you go through this next season together, um, I want you to remember that we have a good and gracious King that we just sang about. And as we um, continue in our study of the Book of Hebrews, um, I, I want you to remember that that you have a High Priest who is interceding for you, as we've been talking about, who is who is before the throne of God praying for you. That is a ministry that he has for all of eternity. And it certainly is the case when you're, when you're in college, when you're facing those exams, when everything's crammed into the last couple weeks, and for some reason your professor has made everything due in the last 14 days of, of, of four months, right? And uh, you, have a, you have a high priest who's praying for you, who's interceding for you. And... As we look at today at the covenant uh, that, that uh, Hebrews talks about, this new covenant, I want you to remember that, that we are part of that new covenant. We are part of the, receiving the benefits that, um, that is given to those that the new covenant was to. And so, don't grow discouraged. Uh, keep your eyes focused on your Savior and remember that He is good. Remember that He is gracious and that He is praying for you today. Hope that you're encouraged as we look through the rest of Hebrews chapter 8 together and that that is applicable to you as you go off to college and start your careers and, and do that next season that God has for you. But if you would join me today, let's start with our time in God's Word with a time in prayer. Father, we, we thank You that You are good. We thank You that You are our King and that, that You aren't a King who lords it over us, who beats it into us, who who uh, delights in, in tormenting your subjects, but you are a gracious King who is kind, who loves us, who prays for us. And your Holy Spirit is also uh, praying and interceding for us, sometimes with words and, and utterings that, that we can't even begin to put out of our mouths because we can't comprehend what to say. And He does that for us. As we turn to Hebrews once again and continue our series in this wonderful letter, this wonderful sermon that was given to this church so long ago, I pray that you'd help us to understand these things. But I pray that this wouldn't just be something that's um, uh, something we put into our minds, not just an academic exercise. I, I pray that today wouldn't just be a day that we add vocabulary to our, our, uh, our arsenal or that we... Um, memorize facts, but Lord, that You would soften our hearts. Help us not only to hear these things and understand it with the minds that You've given to us, but Lord, please help us to, to comprehend how this changes our lives. Please teach us, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we continue with the book of Hebrews, we are going to talk about covenants. And this is one of those Bible words that 21st century Christians hear sometimes. And, and we, we tend to get a little freaked out because it, it just doesn't quite fit into the world that we live in. 
We, we know it's an important concept. After all, Jesus talked about a new covenant when He instituted the Lord's Supper. He instituted a new covenant when He was celebrating on that, that last night before His betrayal. We know that it's an important concept and we talk about the new covenant when we celebrate communion. It's probably a term that you hear thrown around oftentimes in church circles and as you read through your Bible. Most of us have a good idea that the new covenant is good, and that we receive a lot of benefits from being a part of the new covenant. But, but if most of us were asked to give a definition for the term, we'd, we'd start sweating a little bit and try to figure out, okay, how do I, what, what, I don't know. And so this morning, we're going to define this concept. We're going to examine a few major Old Testament covenants. Covenants. You see, it's first helpful that you can pronounce the word. Covenants. Uh, and then we're going to compare two of them the Old and the New Covenants, which are the subject of Hebrews chapter 8, and a very long quotation that the author of Hebrews is going to put at the end of chapter 8 from the book of Jeremiah. In fact, this is the longest quotation in the entire book of Hebrews. So let's jump right in. What is a covenant? The word itself, it implies a, a coming together. It actually comes from a Latin word. Um, the, the Hebrew word means to, to cut something. They, they would be, you, would, you would cut a covenant. We'll talk about why they use that word later on. But the, the later Latin word that we get covenant from just means a, a coming together. And in its most basic form, a covenant is a relationship between two or more parties that is based on an oath, based on an agreement with one another, a very formal agreement. A similar concept that you and I are more familiar with in our culture is that of a contract. In our culture, we make agreements with one another. Uh, you may go down and, and have a notary witness things, or you have a lawyer that's with you. You might even do it in a court, and you sign a piece of paper, and you put your name on it, and, and there's a, it is a formal, legally binding agreement where, where two or more individuals and all the parties that are involved come together and they agree that they are going to fulfill their part of the deal. Failure to, to do so usually has legal consequences. If you keep your contract, there are benefits. There's blessings to it. A covenant, however, is, is it's similar to the idea of a contract, but it's bigger than that. It's much more personal. Our, our contracts are often very disconnected. Uh, but the, where you, you may not even meet the other party that you're making a contract with. The biggest difference between a contract and a covenant is that a covenant contains and involves a relationship with someone. I, I like how Michael Lawrence defines a covenant. He says a covenant is essentially a relationship, but it's a relationship that has been formalized and has been brought under sanctions, as it were. So there are blessings that come if the relationship is kept, and there are penalties that come if the relationship is broken. And a covenant, he continues, is simply the terms of that relationship. Probably the most familiar covenant that we are familiar with in our world, and we still use the word covenant, is the covenant of marriage. Many of you here in this room have made a covenant with one another. You as two individuals, a man and a woman, and you have covenanted to a lifetime of loving one another, of serving one another, of submitting to one another. If you're marrying someone, you don't want to make a contract, right? That, that implies that it's some sort of business arrangement. 
takes the personal relationship out of the agreement. And when we marry, we make a covenant with one another. It's a formalized relationship between two people that begins with the vows that they make with one another. And the keeping of that covenant comes with great blessings. The breaking of that covenant brings about great penalties. Penalties that result in great ruin for the relationship and all those who are connected to the covenant. This concept of a covenant is one that's used oftentimes throughout the Bible. You're going to see covenants referred to over and over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, especially here in Hebrews. This is one of the major topics that he's going to deal with. And, and so this, this God that we serve remarkably wants to have a relationship with us. God, the Creator of the universe, wants to have a relationship with people. And so he frames that relationship in terms of a covenant, a, a formal agreement between individuals that carries blessings and penalties for keeping and breaking the covenant, the relationship. And so this God steps into our world and in various, at various times, He demonstrates the terms of the relationship. What are the blessings? What are the consequences? Even re more remarkable is that this God at sometimes made covenants and the relationship that he covenanted with people was unconditional. We're going to talk about unconditional covenants and conditional covenants. At times, God made an unconditional covenant with the people that he entered this relationship with. And that means that God himself promised in these unconditional covenants that he would fulfill his part of the relationship no matter how often the human party failed on their part, the relationship would never be broken because God would be faithful no matter what. And that's a very important distinction to make as we look at these covenants because some covenants are unconditional and some of them have conditions that the human party has to fulfill in order to experience the blessing of the covenant. So let's walk through four Old Testament covenants together. Four unconditional covenants. And I would encourage you to, to memorize these at some point. Write these down. Memorize the names of these covenants. And I would encourage you to know the passages that these covenants come from. Because these covenants are going to serve as part of the backbone that's going to hold a lot of the Old Testament together. If you understand these four covenants, you're going to understand how the people throughout the Old Testament are in relationship to their God and what they expected from Him as far as blessings and what they expected from Him as far as curses and penalties. These four covenants are going to serve as the structure that's going to hold a lot of the Old Testament and also the New Testament together. So four unconditional Old Testament covenants. The first unconditional covenant that you should be familiar with is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. Just put the word Abraham and add IC on the end of it if you're having trouble spelling it. Abrahamic covenant. The key passage for this covenant relationship between God and the man Abraham is in Genesis chapter 12. Now in this covenant, God gives Abraham three key promises. There's one stipulation for Abraham at the very beginning, and that's leave the land of your fathers and go to the place that I show you. And we find that right away Abraham does that. And so after that condition is met, in that sense it's a conditional covenant, and some people will point that out. But once he leaves and obeys God and does that, 
all the other promises, all the other obligations are all on God. They're all God's promises. And so once Abraham did that, God is bound in this covenant to fulfill His promises to Abraham. Or else he ceases to be God because he stops keeping his promises. And so he will give Abraham the, the three, three key promises. First of all, he will make Abraham into a great nation. He will give Abraham's descendants a great land, and he will bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. Three promises. A, a great name, a great land, and blessing to the whole world through this nation. Now, there are more specifics that God's going to detail in the covenant, and He's going to provide more of those details when it comes to Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17. As you continue reading through the book of Genesis, you'll find that He comes to Isaac and He makes that same covenant with Isaac. And He says, you are receiving the promises that I gave to your father Abraham. He's going to do the same thing with Jacob and the twelve tribes of Israel. And so some of those details are going to come to light as you, as you continue through the story and look at, at the further chapters where, where Abraham has these interactions in this relationship with, with, with his God. For example, the land is specifically defined as all the land between the river of Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River. And so he details exactly what land that's going to be once Abraham gets to that, that area and he shows it to him. And that's a promise that God made to Abraham, but he hasn't completely fulfilled yet. And so there are future parts of the Abrahamic covenant that we still look forward to today, that Israel still looks forward to today. Now, highlighting the unconditional nature of this promise, God has a discussion with Abraham. God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, and he starts out, it starts out with God telling Abraham, Abraham, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham makes a, a very keen observation. He says, God, <laughs> I, I'm 75 years old. And I'm not getting any younger. And uh, there's one key thing here. You haven't given me any children. And in, in regard to the promise of land, uh, God, how, how do I know? How, how do I really know that this is a promise that you're really making with me? It, is this for real or not? How shall I know? And it's a good question. It's a fair question because there's part of this agreement and Abraham's trying to learn to trust this God that he's met and has this relationship with, but, but he's trying to understand how all this works together. And it's at this point that God does something remarkable. God commands Abram, to bring a heifer, a goat, and two birds. Cut the bigger animals in half and lay all the animals down in a path with half on each side and one bird on each side. And this was, if, if you looked at it, and we read the passage, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, I was like, this is some weird stuff. <laughs> you know? I mean, this isn't a sacrifice being made. They're just cutting animals, they're laying them down on the ground, and, you know, wow, we just made a sidewalk with carcasses. What is with that? Now, you and I look at that and we go, this is pretty strange stuff. But for Abraham, he knew exactly what was going on. When God told Abraham to take these animals, these specific animals, to make a path with their dead bodies split in half, he knew exactly what God was doing. This was an ancient ceremony that Abraham would have seen over and over and over again between people entering relationship. They called it cutting a covenant. We call it cutting a covenant. Why? Because they've 
cut the animals in half. And so they would use that term, Bereshit, to, to cut a covenant for hundreds of years, for thousands of years. And so Abraham knew that God was commanding him to make preparations for a covenant agreement. It was an ancient ceremony in which two people would make this covenant with one another. Two people would enter a formal relationship in which they could expect blessings and consequences. And at the appropriate time, the two individuals would join arms and they would walk through that path together. And so that's why Abram, when all the, the vultures and the birds start gathering around and eating the carcasses, he's, he's chasing them away. And he's very intense about it, very serious about it, because he wants to make sure that he's not, he's not blowing what God told him to do. And so these two individuals would walk through this path of animals so as to symbolize, may the same thing happen to me, this dead body right here. If I don't keep my end of the bargain, may that happen to me. It was a very vivid portrayal of what would happen if the covenant was broken. And with that, they would walk through, and the covenant was made. It was that simple. We think you know, that's just kind of easy, but we do the same thing when we sign our name on a piece of paper, right? And that's it. You sign your name on a piece of paper, and it's done. And it's formal, and we understand that that's official. It's legally binding. And it would have been the same for Abraham. Walking through that path was binding, but with the covenant, it was, it was also the formalization of a lifelong relationship. And Yahweh, the God of the universe, the one who created all things, was inviting Abraham into a relationship. But then God does something quite unexpected. As the sun goes down, He causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep. He provides a few more details and tells Abraham about some of the blessings that Abram can expect. And then the Lord Himself, and He, he represents Himself physically in the form of a flaming torch in a, in a, um, a smoking fire pot. Um, those would have been significant for Abram. But, um, and so Abram recognizes that God, in the form of this fire, is passing through the path and God goes down the path between the animals by Himself. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham without Abram walking through. And, and here's why that's significant. God essentially showed Abraham that this was an unconditional covenant. There was nothing that Abram could do to break the covenant because Abram never went through the path. Only God did. God had made promises to the man and nothing on earth and nothing in heaven could remove those promises of blessing from happening for Abraham. Nothing Abraham did or didn't do could stop God from fulfilling those promises to him. The only condition that was ever required of Abram was to leave the land of his fathers. And Abram had done that back in chapter 12. And he went to the land that God had showed him. Now all this is very significant when it comes to biblical prophecy because there are still some portions of the Abrahamic covenant that haven't been fulfilled today. Now there's lots of discussion about that. People talk about Solomon and, and some of the land that Solomon ruled over. And there's some things we're not going to get into today. But... Um, I would suggest to you that there are parts of the promise that was given to Abraham that still have not been fulfilled that God intends to do in the future for Israel and for keeping His promises to this man. And we have to understand that our God 
does not break his promises. If he breaks his promises to Abraham, what does that say about his promises to you? Puts us in a bad spot, doesn't it? And he's shown himself faithful over and over and over again. And I trust that he is going to continue. And he showed us and told us how he's going to do that. And Hebrews 8 is going to actually touch on that. And that's why we still expect certain events in the Bible to take place that are prophesied. The second unconditional covenant that you should be familiar with is what we call the Palestinian covenant. The Palestinian covenant. The key passage of this covenant relationship between God and the nation of Israel is Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's right before they go into the promised land. In this covenant, God particularly promises that He will one day regather Israel. Now, part of the covenant that He's making is He's just given a context that when they disobey Him, He's going to send them out into the world and they're going to be they're going to be punished for their disobedience. That's part of another covenant that we'll get to in a few minutes. But the Palestinian covenant is this particular covenant with the group of Israel where he says, when that happens, when you've been spread out across the whole world, at some point, I'm going to bring you back together to this land. And in this covenant, God particularly promises that He will regather Israel from the places where they are scattered and He will restore their fortunes to them and will have mercy on the people of Israel. The Palestinian covenant is closely related to the Old Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant as we sometimes call it, which we'll consider it from Hebrews 8 in a few moments. But basically, this is an extension of the Abrahamic covenant. And again, God makes promises to His people. I believe that those promises will ultimately be fulfilled when He gathers the Israelites together and they enjoy the land and its blessings during the thousand-year millennium. Uh, We're starting to see some of those benefits even today. The third unconditional covenant that you should be familiar with is what we call the Davidic covenant. And the key passage for this covenant relationship between God and the King David is 1 Samuel chapter 7. In this covenant, God particularly promises that He will build a house for David and that He will establish David's throne forever. The throne of David would, would belong to David's family forever. And again, it's an extension of the covenant made with Abraham, and there are parts of this covenant that will ultimately be fulfilled in the future, particularly through the reign of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is physically a descendant of King David, and he will physically rule on earth as their king. Jesus is going to fulfill this covenant again during what we call his thousand-year reign that's still in the future from our point in history. The fourth unconditional covenant that you should be familiar with is what we call the New Covenant. And the key passage for this covenant relationship between God and Israel is Jeremiah chapter 30 and 31. In this covenant, God particularly promises the basis for His future relationship with the nation of Israel. That is, with the descendants of Abraham and the Jewish people. So we have the Abrahamic covenant. We have the, in Deuteronomy 30, what's the second one? The Palestinian covenant. The third covenant is the Davidic covenant from 1 Samuel chapter 7. And then in Jeremiah 30 and 31, we're given what's called the the new covenant. Very good. So you guys got this. We'll come back to this this new covenant in a few moments because this is the heart of what Hebrews 8 is talking about. But it's important for you to understand that again, this new covenant in Jeremiah 30 and 31 is an unconditional covenant between God and Israel. 
But all the promises and conditions are made and met by which party? By God. Like with Abraham who never walked through the path, there is nothing that Israel or anyone can do that can nullify God's promises in all four of these covenants. Now before we jump to our main passage, I know we're doing a lot of prep work here, but this all relates, and I want us to see how this fits together. Before we jump to our main passage, there's one other covenant that we needed to discuss. And this is what we call the Old Covenant, as Hebrews likes to call it. Uh, You might be more familiar with what's called the Mosaic Covenant. Not a piece of art, a mosaic, but Moses. The covenant that Moses gave to Israel, the Mosaic Covenant. And the key passage for this covenant is Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 19, all the people are gathered at Mount Sinai and and God says, we're going to make an agreement. We're going to make a treaty with one another. I'm going to be your king and you're going to be my people. And in Exodus chapter 19, the people say, we'll do it. We'll do it. And then in Exodus chapter 20, we have a record of what? What's that? Uh, not quite. That's come. Uh, might be later on. I can't remember the exact chapter. But um, before the golden calf, two tablets of stone, which tells them not to make a golden calf, right? Good, Harry, because they're going to break it right away, aren't they? Uh, and that's really important because they don't keep the covenant. And so uh, in Exodus 19 and 20, they say, we're going to do it. And God, you're our king and we'll be your subjects. And we recognize the blessings and the curses for obeying and disobeying this covenant, this, this agreement, this treaty. And, and then in Exodus 20, he gives them the actual Ten Commandments. Essentially, the Mosaic Covenant is a treaty that stipulated the condition of Israel's relationship with their king, Yahweh himself. But here's the difference between the old Mosaic Covenant and the other four covenants that we've just considered. The old covenant, was this a, a conditional covenant or an unconditional covenant? Conditional. You see, it had stipulations for Israel. When they made the covenant at Mount Sinai, they essentially said, Yahweh, You are our King, and we're going to obey You. And God essentially said, You are My people. If you obey Me, I will bless you. And if you disobey Me, there are going to be horrible consequences, and I will curse you. Now in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1-6, through which we considered last Sunday, Hebrews showed us that we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. And that's the main point of everything that he's been trying to say in this section of the book. Jesus is superior, and he is a better high priest than all of the high priests that were under the Mosaic Law Code, under the Old Covenant. Not only this, but Jesus, our high priest, he has a better ministry. Not only is he a high priest, but he has a better ministry today. And we saw how the tabernacle that was made by Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel was patterned after the real tabernacle that was in the very presence of God the Father, the throne room of our our God. And so this tent was a reflection, a shadow of something else that was in heaven. The mosaic tabernacle was just a shadow of the real thing. Human tent, a copy. The heavenly tent was not made with human hands and it was the real thing. And that is where Jesus' ministry takes place. In the very presence of God. He's not a high priest that goes into a tent or into a temple that he has to pass through a curtain and make a sacrifice at once every year. He went into the heavenly temple and today he's in the very presence of our God 
ministering to those who are His. If you are a Christian and you have placed your faith in Him, Jesus is in heaven today ministering on your behalf, praying for you, interceding for you. He's your high priest. And He's in the very presence of God the Father Himself. So Jesus has a better ministry, as Hebrews has argued. And so that's where we left off, left things last week in verse 6, where Hebrews says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So one last thing before we move on to the new covenant. The new covenant is better, we're told, than the Mosaic covenant. There it is. You can't even pronounce the word. How can you preach on it? It's much better than the Old Covenant. So let me ask you a question. Does this all mean that the Mosaic Covenant was bad? No. Does this mean that God failed the first time around and so He has to cancel the Old Covenant in order to fix His mistakes? No. Does this mean that Israel surprised God and somehow ruined His great plan? No, none of that. Let me put it this way. Some of you young folks here are, are today, you are looking forward to making a covenant with one another. You are looking forward to getting engaged. Excited about that someday? Exciting stuff, right? Some of you are going, no, no, please, no, no. All right, you should be excited. It's a great time. Now, when he pops the question, and pulls out a ring or some other symbol of his promise, and, he, and she says, yes, I will marry you, to some extent you've entered a covenant with one another. It's, it's obviously not as binding as the later covenant that you will make with one another, but your engagement marks a formal entrance into a new kind of relationship that you didn't have before when you were just friends. That engagement has a blessings for keeping those promises that you make to one another. And there are consequences for breaking those promises. So let me ask you another question. Do you look forward to getting engaged at some point? It doesn't have to be this week, okay? But at some point, you go, yeah, that would be great. I'd love to meet that person and be engaged. Is it a good thing, engagement? Mitch, Elizabeth, is it good? Yeah. It's a good thing. It's a special time for this special kind of relationship. Absolutely. But how many of you want to stay engaged for the rest of your life and never actually get married? Mitch, Elizabeth? <laughs> no. No. It, it kind of misses the point, doesn't it? The old engagement, as good and wonderful as that time is and as that relationship is, it is absolutely nothing compared to the new covenant of marriage and all the benefits and all the blessings that come with that new relationship. And so, does the new relationship that you experience in marriage mean that the engagement was bad? No, it was a wonderful time. Does it mean that the engagement relationship was a failure because it was flawed in its design? No, it served its purpose, didn't it? But the new covenant is better. Now, the analogy that I'm making with engagement is a bit limited uh, when we're talking about covenants, but the same idea, you can see how that carries over between the old covenant that Moses made with the Israelites, that God made with Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai, 
in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, and the new covenant that's shared with them in Jeremiah 31. And this is the point that's being made in Hebrews 8.6. Because Jesus is a better high priest and has a better ministry in the heavenly throne room of our God, He has become also the mediator of a better covenant that has better promises. And so the old covenant in some ways was preparatory for what God was going to do later on. It was never intended to be permanent. And so he continues in verse 7 by saying, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In other words, as good as the old Mosaic covenant was, it wasn't perfect. And it was always designed to be temporary in nature. And so thus Jeremiah told Israel about this new covenant. And he details the promises of it. And ultimately what he does is he pulls in the Abrahamic covenant and he shows how this new covenant is going to incorporate those promises to Abraham in some ways. He's going to pull in the wording actually of the Palestinian covenant and he's going to show how that Palestinian covenant is fulfilled in this new covenant, not in the old covenant of the Mosaic Law Code. And he's going to pull in the Davidic covenant. All these unconditional promises these unconditional covenants that had come before get pulled into Jeremiah 31 and that you see echoes of that throughout. And the author of Hebrews, by doing this and by quoting, what he's going to do is he's going to quote a huge portion of this, this new covenant in Jeremiah. And the author of Hebrews is going to drive home his point for his Hebrew audience. Because as you remember, these people are struggling with the idea that their worship is no longer centered around a temple. It's no longer centered around the Sabbath day and priests making sacrifices and accomplishing certain ceremonies and, and holy days. And the author of Hebrews is showing them that God has already told them that they should have expected all this to happen a long time ago. 600 years earlier, God had prophesied that this new covenant was going to come. And so the new covenant that Jesus initiated should never have been a surprise to the people. And so by showing that from the Old Testament, he's showing from their own Scripture that Jesus, once again, is better. He's superior. And so now Hebrews gives the longest Old Testament quote that we're going to find in the entire book. He's just going to let Jeremiah speak for himself, really, to show us how the new covenant is better than the old covenant. So let's look at four ways that the new covenant which Jesus has instituted is better than the old covenant made at Mount Sinai. The first way that the new covenant is better is that it is an unconditional covenant, as we've talked about already. Hebrews states this in negative terms. If you look at verses 8 and 9, he says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, it's, again, it's not that the law was evil. It's not that the Old Testament Mosaic Law Code, the Old Covenant, was evil. For the law demonstrated our need for God to save us. It showed us how far we fall short of God's holy standard. The new covenant is better because, number one, it's an unconditional covenant. The old covenant was dependent upon the obedience of the people. And as Harry pointed out, 
As soon as they got the Ten Commandments, what did they do? They worshipped the golden calf. And they received God's forgiveness. They went on their way. They came to the promised land. And, and then what did they do? They tried stoning Moses and Aaron because we're not, there's giants in that land. We're not going in there. And, and God says that's enough. And He punished that entire generation. He said they broke the covenant almost as soon as they had made it. The old covenant was dependent upon the obedience of the people and they failed soon after they departed from Mount Sinai. And so when God states that He did not care for them in verse 9, He's not saying that He no longer loved Israel because, because note that the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 30 and 31, who is that made with? Israel. And so God still has a plan for Israel. And I want you to know that this new covenant is not a covenant that God makes with the church. With Gentiles. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. We get benefits from the New Covenant as Gentiles. And we'll talk about that when we conclude today. But the covenant itself was made with Israel. And so God still has a plan for the nation of Israel and promises that He's given to Israel. And that's what Jeremiah 30.31 is all about, is God fulfilling those promises and how they should expect Him to do so in the future. He's not saying that because of their disobedience he would now break his promises to Abraham. The point that he is making is that they would not receive the benefits of the blessings of the law because they chose the curses of the law by their very disobedience. But the new covenant is not based on the conditions of the law. The new covenant is entirely based on God keeping His promises. And so that makes the new covenant better than the Old Covenant because it's not dependent on us, people. It's not dependent on Israel. It's dependent on God Himself. The second way that the New Covenant is better is that it's an internal covenant. The New Covenant is a relationship in which God changes people from the inside out. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And again, he's quoting right from Jeremiah 31. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put My laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be My people. What was the most memorable expression of the Old Covenant? The symbol that people looked to and went, that agreement. Was it not the writing of the law on those tablets of stone that was summarized in the Ten Commandments? You saw those tablets and God had etched into rock. Thou shalt not. In the New Covenant though, God says I'm going to do things in a different way. I'm not going to write on tablets of stone. I'm going to write on their hearts. I'm going to lead My people into worship. I'm going to lead My people into holiness in a new way. Not by a list of rules that they have to keep externally, but My Spirit is going to transform their minds. My Holy Spirit is going to transform their hearts. And we will have a relationship with one another rather than a list of regulations and laws to, to formulate this relationship. This relationship is going to be internalized. And I'm going to change them from the inside out as I transform them into my, the image of my own Son. The third way that the New Testament is better is that it's personal. Verse 11 says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest. What a beautiful picture 
of our relationship with God and Israel's relationship with God that they will have one day. People no longer have to seek out a priest. Aren't you glad that anytime you want to talk to God, you don't have to come to my office and go through me? That would be horrible. I can't imagine you having to do that. People no longer have to seek out a priest under the old system to mediate between them and God. Everyone who is in Jesus Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is based on God's grace through your faith and what He accomplished for you on the cross, then you have a new relationship with this Savior. You have a personal relationship with Him. We all know that the, we all know the Lord. And we all have the Holy Spirit living and residing in us, guiding us, leading us, teaching us. This is a personal covenant. The old covenant was not. But the fourth way that the new covenant is better is that it finalizes the forgiveness of sin. He concludes his quotation from, in verse 12 and says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You see, under the old covenant, the sins of the people were merely covered by the blood of bulls and goats. Under the old covenant, sins were never truly forgotten. Sins were never washed away. They were just covered up by the blood of animals. There was just a temporary solution given to a horrible, awful problem. The problem of sin. But at the cross... It wasn't the sacrifice of animals that was made and put up on that tree, on that cross. It wasn't the sacrifice of animals that made atonement for our sins. It was the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which was shed because of the infinite value of who He is. Because of the infinite value of His blood and His life that was given in our place. Our sins weren't just covered. They were washed away. Completely. And in the resurrection, our Savior has conquered death and He's brought to us eternal life. The Old Covenant was good because it pointed people to their need for a Savior. It pointed people to, to their shortcomings and how they fell short of God's standard. It showed us our need for redemption. And the Old Covenant showed us our need for forgiveness. But when Christ came, the Old Covenant, we're told, was made obsolete. It, just as much as marriage makes the engagement obsolete. It was a wonderful time. But you don't go back to being engaged to one another because you've entered something far better. This is why in verse 13, after completing his quotation from Jeremiah, he writes, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And amazingly, I don't know if the author of Hebrews had any idea what he was writing here. I mean, he had an idea what he was writing, but I don't know if he had any comprehension of, of how this was going to be fulfilled so literally, so quickly. Within a few short years, probably two to five years after Hebrews was written, the Romans came in. They destroyed Jerusalem. They, they burned down the temple in order to get the gold. They burned down the temple. They destroyed the altar. The priesthood, all the genealogies, everything that was kept there was all destroyed. The priesthood of the Old Covenant in the Mosaic Law Code has never come back. 
We, we never had sacrifices being offered in Jerusalem since 70 AD. Almost 2,000 years. And quite literally, the Old Covenant vanished away. Now in conclusion, I'd like to just address one final issue. I, I've stated a couple times that the New, Test, the New Covenant is a covenant that God has promised for Israel. As far as I'm aware, there are no covenants that God has made to us Gentiles directly in, in the Bible where God says, I'm making a covenant with you Gentiles. I, I don't think I've seen that. And so the first ramification that this has is that we should be encouraged that God still has a plan for His chosen people Israel. Now it's interesting, as we look at Hebrews chapter 8, I, I told you that, that the, the, uh, the new covenant is contained where? Jeremiah. Yeah, in our hearts, yes. But in the passage, Jeremiah 30 and 31. If you notice the quotation in Hebrews 8, where does it come from? Just Jeremiah 31. There's only a part of the New Covenant that, that Hebrews quotes. And I think part of that's significant because there are a lot of elements of the Abrahamic, law, Abrahamic Covenant. There are a lot of elements of the Palestinian Covenant and a lot of elements of the Davidic Covenant that are talked about in chapter 30 and 31. But he doesn't get into that in Hebrews because that's all something that's still future. If you've noticed the parts that he did talk about, that's for today. And also, it's for Gentiles. The parts that he talked about are something that we get to benefit from. And so, be encouraged to know that first of all, God still has a plan for His chosen people Israel. He's going to keep His promises. We, just by the very nature of Israel coming back to the promised land, we're watching it. Right now in Ukraine, we're watching. How many people did you say the other day? Tens of thousands of Jews leaving Ukraine and going back to Israel. We're seeing these promises taking place in, 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 in increments. And God is bringing the people back to the land that He promised them for a time in which He is going to ultimately fulfill His promises to His people. We're, we're seeing things in motion. We should be looking forward to the ways in which the Lord is going to fulfill those promises to Abraham and to Israel and to David. But secondly, one of the most glorious truths revealed in the New Testament is that the good news has been made available and known to us Gentiles. The parts that Hebrews 8 talks about, those are parts of a covenant that were made to Israel, but God in His infinite plan has said, I want the Gentiles to benefit from all this. And so when it talks about God writing His law on your hearts, He does that for you. He does that for you. It's internal. He's changing you from the inside out as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ. You, as a Gentile who He's never made a covenant with, get to share in the benefits of this new covenant because you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit residing in you, a non-Jew. You get the, benef the benefits of all these things that are happening that Hebrews is talking about. By God's grace, you and I get to participate in the promises. God is ultimately going to fulfill these promises during Christ's reign on earth, but as Paul talks about elsewhere, we are the first fruits. We are receiving real benefits of the promises of the new covenant because Jesus instituted that on the night when he sat down with his disciples. Remember, he said, I'm giving to you a new covenant. Do you remember him saying those words? He instituted this new covenant that superseded the old covenant which was becoming obsolete. 
And, and while the full implementations of the new covenant haven't all happened yet and will happen when he comes back, he's initiated it and there are aspects of it which are happening today and they're happening for you and me, Gentiles. We are receiving the real benefits of those promises. And so finally, I, I want to encourage you, be encouraged that through the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ to a position where He sits at the right hand of God the Father today, Jesus has instituted this new covenant. The old has already become obsolete. The new covenant promises have begun to take effect. And God is fulfilling those promises in part now. He's changing people from the inside out. He's entering into personal relationship with us. And for those who have trusted Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for them, He has washed away your sins and they are as far as the east is from the west. Let us rejoice. Rejoice in the goodness that our God has just lavished on us. The praise team would come forward. We're going to close in a final song. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You. We love You. Human minds could never have comprehended the incredible plan that You came up with. This incredible plan to save people. To enter into relationship with people. And now in this present age, to incorporate us Gentiles into these promises and to allow us to receive the benefits of of these promises that You've given to Israel. Thank You for involving us. Thank You for entering relationship with us. Thank You for letting us take part in this glorious relationship. I pray that we would not take that lightly. Might we go from here rejoicing in the goodness that You've lavished on us. You're a good God, and we love You. Thank You.